good to see you guys. Uh, I just want to begin by uh, congratulating Matthew and Mackenzie, future rakes, engaged yesterday. It's exciting. There they are in the back. Everybody turn and look. I'm just kidding. I don't want to embarrass you too much. It's about time, Matthew. It's about time. All right. Um, anyways, if you haven't yet, uh, 1 Corinthians 2 is where we're hanging out this morning. Uh, we're picking up in our time in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, Davey walked us through uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and following. And he showed us how in the eyes of the world, uh, the message of the cross is just foolishness. It's, it's ridiculous. And then he, it also showed us how even the people that God saves are really nothing to look at. They're not that special in and of themselves. That's just what God does. He, he, he makes people who are nobodies somebodies. And then in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, um, Paul uh, even says that his methods of proclaiming this gospel were really foolish. It's preaching. He didn't try to come in there and be all smart and wise and, and just debate people. He just proclaimed simply the message of the gospel, and it just changed people's lives. It said it demonstrated the, the spirit of God and his power. So this is like where we've been. He's been talking about wisdom, and today we continue on in this really, really, really important topic of wisdom. Uh, this morning, guys, I just kind of want to put wisdom on your radar. I honestly don't know how much you've been thinking about wisdom lately. Maybe a lot. I would bet maybe not that much. I mean, just wondering, am I a wise person? I don't know if you're thinking that very often, or what is wisdom, or how can I become wise? I just want to put wisdom on our radar. And an important question when it comes to wisdom that you need to ask yourself is, is who do you want to think that you're wise? It's actually an important question to ask yourself when it comes to wisdom. Who is it in the world that you want them to think that you are wise? That you're wise. Whose eyes do you want to be wise in? Is it everybody in the world? Is anybody in the world you want them to, to think you're wise at yourself? Or do you want to be wise in God's eyes? Do you want to be wise in God's eyes? I really, I don't ask this question and want it to linger here because I'm wondering what the right answer is. Uh, like, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I know right now that you're probably, if I were to ask you that and someone's like, what's your answer? You go, well, I want to be wise in God's eyes. But that's not the question. I'm, I'm asking you a desire question. Uh, that's why I said, what, who do you want? Want. That's a desire question. To think that you're wise. I mean, do you really want God to think that you are or is it somebody else? Uh, the other day, Gus uh, asked me to build him a robot. If you don't know, uh, Gus is one of my boys. He's four, okay? He came up to me, he said, Dad, um, build me a robot, like a real robot, like an actual robot, okay? Not a cardboard robot. And uh, he thinks I'm really smart, okay? It's adorable, isn't it, right? That he would think that I could actually build him a robot. Some of you are like, that's ridiculous, right? That's crazy that he could think that. But, but, but no one else, I mean, because no one else in this room is asking me to build him a robot. Like, no one, none of you are coming up to, to me today and go, can you build me a robot? NASA is not knocking on my door asking me to build them a robot. It probably wouldn't surprise you to find out that even though Gus thinks I'm smart, it doesn't mean that I'm smart. In his eyes, I'm super smart. I could even build him a robot. But that doesn't mean, ultimately, that I am. So whose eyes do you want to be wise in, and are those the right eyes? Are those the right eyes? See, whose eyes you want to be wise in will ultimately determine where you think you'll get wisdom. 
And it'll actually determine how you're going to then live in this life here and now. But even this morning, it talks about in our passage, that'll determine your future, your eternal future. It's important to realize, too, that wisdom, guys, it's not just knowledge. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge on the ground. It's definitely containing knowledge when we're talking about wisdom, but it's way more than that. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's knowing what to do and how to do it. That's wisdom. Wisdom, in other words, is, is an action idea. There's action involved with wisdom. And so Paul continues to contrast the world's wisdom and God's wisdom a bit here in chapter 2. But the discussion, he really puts all the weight on God's wisdom and what wisdom is in the eyes of God. And so we see a bit of what God's wisdom is and what it does. So how do you know this morning if you are wise in God's eyes? And does that even matter to you? Uh, there's three things. should be on the screen behind me we see here. that We see that true wisdom, I'm using the word true wisdom for really God's wisdom, but true wisdom plays the long game. True wisdom is received, it's not achieved, and true wisdom, it'll make you different. It'll make you a different person. So first thing we see is that true wisdom plays the long game. Look again with me in verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, he spoke it, before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, though, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, it's referring to Jesus. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul's saying in verse 6, uh, the world might not think that we're wise, but we are imparting wisdom. We're dishing it out. We're giving it out. But uh, it's not a wisdom of this age. It's not a wisdom that people in this time period that he's writing this, or a time period like ours. It's not a wisdom that people would look at in our day and age, in this day and age, and go, that's wise. He's saying it's not a wisdom of this age. It's actually really old wisdom. It's like before any age, before any part of time even coming into existence, he says God decreed his wisdom, his wisdom to send Jesus to die for, for people who God knew we were going to reject him, but he sent Jesus. That was the plan. That was the wisdom of God before the foundation of the earth, is what Paul is saying here. This is God's wisdom, and it says the rulers of this age, uh, they, didn't, they didn't notice it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They would have said, oh, look, it's the wisdom of God. But they didn't do that. They said, no, this is ridiculous, and they crucified him. And so it's interesting. It says the rulers here, it's referring to people of influence during the time of Jesus. That's what these rulers are. Which in our day and age, we don't maybe have like kings in America, but there are people of influence in our cultures as well. And for us, it's honestly, it's, it's celebrities. It's the musicians, it's the artists, it's the actors. Honestly, those are the people with the strongest voices, the people with the biggest platforms. Those are the people that when they speak, people listen. And if they say something that sounds good to us, we go, so wise. There it is, there's wisdom of this age, right? And so they said that these rulers though, they're people of influence. They didn't ultimately, make, they made the decision to crucify Jesus. And they ex, they, the, the rulers who executed Jesus, guys, they did not understand what they were doing, though. That's what Paul says here. And that's why Jesus prays on their behalf when he's being crucified on the cross. Luke 23, 34, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They didn't recognize it. See, what God was doing, though, 
What he and his wisdom was doing before the dawn of time and the creation of the world was to send Jesus to die for people. Just think about that. God's wisdom is old. It's very, very old. See, the world's wisdom has a suspicion of whatever is old. We have a youth culture, right? We honor what is new, what is fresh, what feels progressive. We can never go back because that's wrong. We've built off of that. We've learned from that. That's what we think, right? So we think wisdom is something that's new, that's fresh, but God's wisdom is ancient. It's very, very, very old. And that's why as Christians, we look back upon previous generations and we think we can learn from them. They could teach us something. People in the past weren't stupid. Why? Because we believe in a different kind of wisdom. That God gave wisdom to people from generation to generation. It's the same wisdom. It's the wisdom of old. And so here's the thing. If God's wisdom planned for the death of Jesus from the beginning of the ages, Paul picks up on that. He, he grabs some verses here and he throws them together in this quote. And he's already said that God in his wisdom was acting for your glory. In verse 7. This was decreed, God's wisdom was decreed before the ages for our glory. So he's picking up on this idea. And if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, yes, you would go, yeah, there's certain aspects of glory that you experience in following Jesus. There's joy, right? There's peace, there's newness of life, right? You see the world differently, right? But there's a lot of times, I mean, David was just praying for the persecuted church. Following Jesus doesn't always feel like glory. That's because he's pointing you to a future. And that's what he does with these verses here. That's what he's doing with glory. He talks about it further. He says, what no eye has seen, what you can't, you've never seen it, you haven't even heard about it, you can even fathom it. Fathom what? What God has prepared for you who love him. He's pointing your eyes towards some future hope, this glorious future that if you are wise now, you're going to play the long game. If you're wise now, you will spend time thinking about that day. And you'll just let it sit around and float around in your heart a bit. And you're going to hope for it. You're going to long for it. This practically means that you will have different hopes in this world if you are really wise. That, that you're going to have different hopes. This will be on the screen. C.S. Lewis said this. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, true wisdom, if you really are wise in God's eyes, you're going to play the long game, not the immediate game. You're hoping for something that's to come, what you can't even fathom. Uh, my wife is in Sun River this weekend with her sisters and mom. Um, she left me at, she did. She left me, not in that way, whatever. She left me at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, okay? So 9 a.m. Friday morning, she left. I am wifeless right now, okay? And my kids are momless, and they're feeling it, I'm sure, Okay? Um, I, am, I am longing for her to return tonight. I cannot wait for her to walk through that door, right? I, I just realized this weekend, I'm not made to juggle pastoring and parenting all at the same time without her, okay? So what should I have done this weekend? What should I have done? Should I have gone out and found another wife? No, right? Hopefully, hopefully you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> right? That would not be wise, right? What would be wise for me? What would make me a wise husband and a wise father would be what? Play the long game. There's a, there's a hope on the horizon coming. It's tonight when she walks through that door. And it's really wise of me to play the long game, to wait, right? It would be ridiculous if I didn't. 
That would be wisdom, okay? I know it's a ridiculous example. So just let's talk about this in economic terms, okay? So just imagine you're living in the 1980s. Okay, imagine you're living in the 1980s. Some of you, those were the glory years, right? Just imagine you're living in the 1980s, you have a ton of money. And you go, I'm gonna invest all the money I have into the stock of Apple computers and Starbucks. Remember, it's the 80s. Right now, people would say to you, that's yeah, a fine investment probably. Those are pretty good companies, right? They're pretty popular still. But back in the 80s, they weren't anything to look at. I mean, Starbucks was nothing, really. Apples were just, you know, computers were new, everything like that. Just imagine if you put all your money, like a lot of it, into those companies back in the 80s, people would look at you and they'd probably turn their head a little bit and go, what are you doing? You're acting a little bit foolish, but what would you say to them? You're like, no, I have a good feeling. I'm playing the long game. And right now, you'd be, you'd be cashing out, right? You'd be doing pretty well if you had done something like that. Right? Play the long game. Just because our, your current circumstances in life aren't proven to be successful or ideal or even wise or ideal in the world's eyes, that doesn't mean you should abandon ship. We should, we should play the long game. And in a society that operates on impulse, we struggle to do this because wisdom feels like now. It doesn't feel like tomorrow. But true wisdom plays the long game. It might not seem wise now, but one day it will. And what that day brings, Paul says, your mind and your heart can't even begin to fathom its glory. Second thing, true wisdom is received. It's not achieved. Look with me in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The right word probably is more combining spiritual truths with people who are spiritual. Okay, so th there are huge words here that are throughout. There are huge key words here. Something's been revealed in verse 10. Something's been received in verse 12. Something's been freely given in the second part of verse 12. We have revealed things, received things, freely given things. What has been revealed? What's been received? What's been freely given? These things. Verse 10, these things have been revealed, we've received them, right? And they've been freely given. What are these things that we've just received, that have been revealed, that have been freely given to you? It's the wisdom of God. That's what it means, the wisdom of God. The refrain from God's word here in these passages, in these verses, is that wisdom is received. It's given to you. It's not something you go searching for and discover and you achieve. It's given. You receive it. Paul spends time in verse 11 trying to prove that we must receive the Spirit if we're to have God's wisdom because only the Spirit knows the wise mind of God. That to be wise in God's eyes, it's not just information you need. It's actually God himself. And he proves this. He uses this analogy of trying to understand another person and how we can't understand another person without them revealing themselves to you. Right? You, you, we know this, right? You need someone else to reveal themselves to you for you to know them. Right? This isn't rocket science, right? We, we understand this. Like if 
Chaz, right? If, Chaz, if we just heard rumors that there was this guy, Chaz in Corvallis, and Chaz just locked himself up in a house and no one ever met Chaz, but we knew he existed, what would we do? We could all just, you know, we could talk about Chaz. We could make up whatever we want about him. We're like, well, I heard Chaz is seven foot seven, and he's really, he's really handsome, you know, and, and he's really good at, pa- <laughs> sorry, I don't mean, sorry. <laughs> That's not a rumor, sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just off the top of my head, man, I don't know. Uh, he paints, right? We can make up whatever we want about Chaz, can't we? But once Chaz walks out of the house and says, this is who I am, we can't just make up whatever we want about Chaz. And if we really want to know Chaz, we want to listen. We want him to reveal himself. We want to be near him. We want him to speak. We want him to reveal his heart to us so that we could know Chaz. Whoever's the lucky lady that's going to marry Chaz someday, right, is somebody who's going to long for Chaz to open up and for Chaz to reveal his heart to her. That's what, that's what they're going to want. We all long for this in relationships, but we all know that you can't know somebody, you can't know their mind, their heart, anything about them without them telling you. You can't just social media stalk someone to know them. They have to tell you. They have to reveal themselves to you. And if you talk to someone who's been married for like 50 years, they would probably say about their spouse, yeah, they're still a mystery to me. I'm still longing to get to know them. And the same is very true about God. And it's even more so. Because just think about it. If we need others to reveal information like that, then how much more do we need God to reveal himself? If you're to know God, and if you're to have wisdom, which comes from God, you need God to reveal himself to you. But you don't just need information, Paul says, you need the Spirit, because what the Spirit does, we're told in verse 12, is he searches the depths of God, then we receive him, and we have the Spirit of God, who is the one who knows everything about God. So so we need God to tell us about God. The only wise being wise enough, knowledgeable enough, and skillful enough to reveal God to you is God. Remember uh, remember Peter? When he was following Jesus and Jesus said, you know, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter had this amazing confession. He says, you are the Messiah, which means the sent one. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He didn't achieve it, he received it. See, the world's wisdom says, search for it and you can discover it. And today people would say, look deep inside of yourself. That's where you'll find wisdom, but God's wisdom, it must be given to you. It must be given to you. So just think about this. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, if you love Jesus this morning and you're here, you believe that he's the Christ, that he was sent from God, that he died for you, that he rose again on your behalf, if you embrace this message, if he is your only hope, then know this, that God has revealed that to you. God has done that. I mean, maybe somebody told you, maybe somebody taught you, maybe you read it in a book, but you got it. I mean, you really got it. You embraced it because God did that for you. He just revealed that to you. That's such grace, that's such mercy of God, it's evident in each of our lives who know Jesus. Because we see that God did this for us. God did this for us. See, what this will do, guys, is it'll make you really humble. This kind of wisdom makes you humble. Because you didn't achieve it. You received it. It'll make you really teachable. 
Because you realize you haven't gotten the corner yet. But the world's wisdom will actually make you prideful because it's something that someone said they discovered. And they're not really that teachable. They want to all be teachers. We also want to say what it is that we know, that we think we know. But God's wisdom makes you humble. It'll give you a different posture. Because you didn't find it, it found you. And if it found you, if it's not yours, then you'll humbly pass it along. And when people come to you for it, you won't feel prideful because you're like, well, I just received it. You have it now. That's why he says we impart this in words to spiritual people. You'll give it away. And to be 100% honest, though, it won't make you prideful because people in Corvallis, people in this world, they won't think you found it. They'll think what you have is actually foolishness. And that leads me to the final point. Verse 14, we see that true wisdom will make you different. It'll make you different. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. It says the natural person is someone who calculates, they discern, and they value the material. Things of this age, to use the term that we've been looking at, the here and now. And we've already discovered that if you haven't received the Spirit, then you can't be spiritual. And so what's happening here is Paul's just contrasting. There's two types of people in this room right now, he says. There's natural people, there's spiritual people, right? Uh, we need to ask ourselves really quickly, though, what does it mean to be spiritual? Because we kind of get a wrong idea about this sometimes. What does it mean to be spiritual according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Right, we think someone often who is very contemplative, we go, oh, they're so spiritual. You know, or we think of um, someone who's very demonstrative in worship, is really spiritual. We're like, oh, look at that person worshiping, they're so spiritual, or, or maybe um, someone who's really spontaneous and they, like, never follow through on anything. You're like, oh, they're just so spiritual, right? They're just, you know, going from thing to thing, whatever it is, right? Or maybe they just know the right things to say and the way to say it, and we go, oh, they're so spiritual. They know all the spiritual words, right? Maybe it's someone who you think is really interested in miracles or the supernatural, and you go, oh, that person's so spiritual. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who's the most famous, one of the most famous American thinkers of all time, uh, would call all the things I just listed here non-signs of being spiritual. They're not good and they're not bad, per se. There's nothing right or wrong about them, okay? But it's possible that you could do all those things and people go, you're such a spiritual person, but according to these verses, you aren't spiritual. Because spiritual people, verse 13 states, understand spiritual truths. That's what he says. Natural people reject the things of the Spirit. They reject spiritual truths. That's the dividing line. So we must ask, what are the things of the Spirit? What are the spiritual truths? What are they? Well, it's the very things that Paul's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2. The cross of Jesus. The gospel. So spiritual people are people who receive the gospel. They receive Jesus, who saw, Paul says, I proclaim Jesus and him crucified. I proclaim the person in Jesus, who he is. And I proclaimed what he did. He died for sins. The spiritual person is the one who receives that. 
right? But the natural person says when they hear Jesus came and died and rose for them, the spiritual person just goes, that doesn't sound smart. That doesn't make sense. You mean to say that I'm in need? That I need someone to do something for me? That's what, the, that's what the natural person does. But the spiritual person embraces the cross. They go, yes, I am in need. I need my sins forgiven. I need a savior. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So what happens to the spiritual and natural person? What does this look like? Well, in verse 15, we get the idea. It says the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Here, judging is the idea of examining and discerning. That's what this idea of judging is. It doesn't mean you're judgmental. Doesn't mean that Christians are going out there and you're like, well, you're an idiot and you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong. And non Christians go up to Christians and they're like, you can't judge me. That's not what this means at all. What this means is that because you have the Spirit, Paul further develops and says, because you have the mind of Christ, you have this wisdom, you have this discernment in life to navigate life. But the natural person doesn't have the discernment that you have, they don't have that judgment that you have. And so they're going to judge you in a specific way, thinking you're a fool, but you're realizing, no, I have the right judgment. I have the right wisdom. And so their judging and their examining of you has no bearing on your life. And Paul then backs this up by quoting Isaiah, and he dives back into the idea that no one can understand the mind of God except for God. No one instructs God. No one counsels God. And then he puts an exclamation point on the whole ordeal, and he says, we have the mind of Christ. He's saying we can know God's mind because we have the Spirit. And we have the Spirit, so we have the mind of God. We have the mind of Christ. But he's not saying that that means you know everything. It means that you know the one who does know everything. And he lives in you. And what he's doing to the spiritual person is he's teaching them, feeding them, and guiding them. Guys, what this is showing you is that if you have true wisdom, if you have wisdom in God's eyes, you are going to be different. Have you embraced that? You're going to be a different person. This means that you won't be understood. That if you're a Christian and you're, you're walking through life and you have these values and this vision for your life in the future, the way you parent, the way, the way you view marriage and the way that you function in your marriage, as a college student, the way that you view sex and how you should wait for that in the confines of marriage, whatever it is, like you're going to be different. You're going to be misunderstood. And isn't that like the worst thing? Don't you hate being misunderstood? I hate it. Oh, it drives me nuts. Where someone says something that I said, I'm like, I didn't, I didn't say that. Or I didn't say it in that way or whatever. And they're like, well, yes, you did. You're like, oh, I didn't, you know. I hate being, mis- we all, we hate being misunderstood. This is showing you if you're following Jesus, if you're truly wise, you're going to be misunderstood. I mean, think about it. Jesus was misunderstood. People didn't understand Jesus. Even his own brothers, the Gospel of John tells us, didn't believe in him. It wasn't until after he died and rose again that his brothers James and Jude came to faith. And they ended up writing two letters in your New Testament. Right? Even Jesus himself was misunderstood. Right? This is, this is, I mean, do you believe this? Do you realize this? And so here's the point. 
Never, never, never. If you've embraced this, never, never, never give up on the word of God because people in the world are not impressed with it. I mean, do you think that the world was impressed with the gospel in the first place? I mean, do you think they said, oh, wow, man, this Jesus thing, he's so cool. He's so in right now. Like, just what he says, what he does, how he tells me I'm a sinner, I need forgive, you know? Like, oh, this is so in right now. Like, that, that wasn't happening ever. No, they weren't impressed. They were not impressed. This is where God's word hits us because we want to be impressive. We want to be impressive. We want to be understood. We want people to look at our lives and how we're navigating them and go, oh, that's so wise. That's so good. But play the long game. Play the long game. And you will if you're wise, is what Paul's saying. I mean, I know some of you are in fields that seem really difficult, honestly, to study and to be a Christian in. Maybe you're in disciplines like biology or anthropology or some type of psychology or sociology or different science or literature. I want to encourage you, be the very best in your field of work. Be the absolute best. Do good work. Study hard. I, I, I even hope that you're recognized for your work. I really do. But at the end of the day, we must realize that even in our studies, we need to submit our mind and our hearts to the very word of God because in it is the wisdom of God. In it is the very wisdom of God. So there will be times, a lot of them probably, where you're going to seem very different to people. They're not going to understand you. There will be points at every age and every heart like there always has been, where the wisdom of God looks utterly ridiculous, where people are going to say, I still can't believe that you think that. I cannot believe that you've acted that way. But again, that's the wisdom of the age. We go, there's wisdom that's really old. Of course I still think that. We don't trade this in for the wisdom of the world because verse 6 says that it's doomed to pass away. Well, so what, Okay. There's two things I just want to end with. Number one, you must ask yourself the question, where am I going to find wisdom? I've already alluded to it in talking about scripture because when we go, where is wisdom imparted? Where is the secret hidden wisdom of God found? Where do we learn about God's decree of old? Where are these spiritual truths that Paul's talking about? Well, they're in God's word. They're in the Bible. And so honestly, if you're a wise person in God's eyes, this will change the way that you read the Bible than what a lot of people in this day and age read the Bible like. Because the Bible is going to rub you the wrong way sometimes. You're going to read something that you don't like, that's uncomfortable to you. And there might be some aspects of you that's still that natural person. And you're going to read it and you're not going to like it. There might be parts of 1 Corinthians you're going to read and you're like, I don't like this. But when it comes to those moments, the wise person postures themselves under the word of God and receives God's wisdom. We long for it. We ask for it. That's where we find it. It's in God's word. But number two, more than knowing where we're going to find wisdom, this whole chapter matters because, again, we must ask ourselves this. Who are we going to be? Who are we going to be? Are we going to be wise according to whom? Who are you going to be? Are you, who are you going to be wise according to? And do you even care about that? I really hope you do. I really hope you do. For that, let me just briefly remind us about the garden. Okay, not the community garden that you love and adore in your neighborhood. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. 
here in Corvallis, but the garden God made for the very first human beings. Because in that garden, the first point of tension and the first creeping in of temptation and sin was all revolving around this idea of wisdom. And it's illuminating for us when we consider who we're going to be. It'll be on the screen here. You remember this story. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, this is God's word again, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, which she added that, God didn't say that, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God and you'll know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she says that looks good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sinned. See, they were tempted, and they thought, if we remove ourselves from God, then we'll be wise. Like, if we don't listen to God, then we'll really be wise. And ever since that day, people have been walking around thinking that they're wise, but all we've done is reject God's wisdom, thinking that God is somehow holding out on us and something else, something other than his word or his ways, something else is going to make us wise. And all it's done is make us foolish. I mean, look where it's gotten us. We saw the horrors this week that David was praying about. Look at where it's gotten us. We so often think we have wisdom, and often that just leads us down broken highways of pain and frustration and hurt and emptiness. See, that first temptation was to doubt the word of God, that God was wise. But then God sent Jesus in his wisdom. And Jesus, in the great second temptation, was he, when he was out in the wilderness, he was tempted as, as the second and the better and the truer Adam was tempted. He was tempted out there by the devil. And when he was tempted, the first temptation that was tempted of him was to doubt again in the wisdom of God. It was to not trust the word of God. And Jesus didn't do what Adam did. No, he quoted Deuteronomy. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone. Satan said, come on, Jesus, be relevant. Turn these stones into bread. Eat and satisfy your hunger. And Jesus said, there's something more important and more lasting than just bread. We don't live by bread alone, but by the words of God. That's what we live by. Why? Because it's wise. It's wisdom. The big so what is this? Whose eyes do you desire to be wise in? Is it the world's eyes or is it God's eyes? Does that even matter to you? Do you want to be wise? And whose eyes are you wise in? See, the gospel is that Jesus came and died for you to not just save you from your sins, but so that now you could live wisely in this world. To live wisely means that you play the long game. Because you and I cannot fathom what God has prepared for those of us who love him. You can't fathom it. To live wisely means we're humble because this wisdom is received 
that wasn't achieved. And to live wisely means that we're a different kind of person in this world that the rest of the world will not understand and will actually call you a fool. That's what it means to live wisely in God's eyes. So who do you want to think that you're wise? I, pr- I really hope it's God. And let's pray to ask him to make us think that way. During this time, I just want you guys to, to consider that question. To really invite God to ask you this question. And to draw out of you what is true in your heart. Oh God, we pray. We know that our hearts are really deceitful. Um, they deceive us often. And so we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would show us how important wisdom is. But more than anything, God, I want you to show us today whose eyes we really care to be seen as wise in. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, by your working in our lives today, that you would cause us, Lord, to desire more than anything to be wise in your eyes. That we would truly live wisely in this world. And that you would help us do that as a community that's encouraging each other in this, Lord as we live in spaces in this life uh, that are going to be really uncomfortable. We're not going to enjoy being called foolish. But God, I thank you that you're with us and that someday your wisdom will be brought into the light in all of its glory, and I pray we'd long for that day. We ask these things uh, in your son's name. Amen.